Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 is where we'll be for the message today. Well, you know by now that I love the book of 2 Corinthians. And this is one of the passages of this book that I've been looking forward to the most. The very last verses of this chapter. Probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and these final verses are its crown. It is just a sweet chapter full of so many great truths. Every passage here is like its own slice of cheesecake. You just love every, every little morsel. It's so good. And uh, I just look forward to dwelling on this with you in the moments ahead. But let me read to you verses 18 to 20, and we'll start thinking through this some more. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, we left off last week in verses 16 and 17, where we saw that Paul was correcting the Corinthians in their thinking and the judgments they were making to regard one another on a spiritual basis, not based on the flesh, but for Christians to consider other Christians based on spiritual realities, not on our fleshly judgments, which is always a challenge, something we always have to watch out for, something we always have to be repenting of. And so he reminds them in verse 17 that the new things have come. They are new creations in Christ. The new things have come. And last week we dwelt on what some of those new things are. They've been justified by God. They're no longer in their sin. They've been justified. They have a new worldview. They are now no longer slaves to sin, but they are slaves to Jesus Christ. They now have the Holy Spirit as their guide and companion. They now have a new ambition in life. Their ambition is to please God in all things. All of these are new. And we're really probably just scratching the surface when we talk about what becomes new when you are in Christ as a believer. And Paul says here in our passage today in verse 18 that all these things, the new things, are from God. God who reconciled us through the gospel. That's Paul's big point here at the end of this chapter is that God is the reconciler. All of these new things have come from Him, the one who reconciled us. The good news of salvation, the gospel, it's the message of reconciliation. You'll see in verse 18, again, that God reconciled sinners in Christ. That is why Christ came, to reconcile the world to Himself. And that's what it means to be saved. All people who are saved are reconciled, and vice versa. Anybody who's been reconciled to God truly has been saved. That is what we mean when we talk about being saved, is 
being reunited with your Creator without regard to sin, being in new relationship with God. And sinners are in desperate need of this, aren't they? Sinners need to be reconciled to their Creator. We must understand that this is the problem that exists. This is the bad news that exists. Why do we have good news? Why do we have this ministry of reconciliation? It's because the world needs it. We all needed it before we were saved, before we were reconciled. We needed that word to come to us. We needed to be reconciled with God to whom we owe all things. And so we must see this as the problem. Otherwise, we'll never be motivated to share the good news. We'll never have any kind of sense of desperation when it comes to reaching the world for Jesus if we don't first understand that they're separated from God, that they are split away from God because of their sin, and that there needs to be a reconciliation made so that they can be reconciled to their Creator. And we see here in our passage, again, verse 18, that this is God doing the reconciling. You see that? All these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. This is God's business. He initiates this work of reconciliation, and He does so in the person and work of Jesus. God is the one who reconciles, and He does so through Christ. He doesn't do so through self-help. He doesn't do so through Gandhi. He doesn't do so through Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else. He does so through Jesus. He's the only way. And we see this all over the Bible, but I want to point out to you 1 John chapter 4, in verse 10, God says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is love? Well, don't start with yourself in giving that explanation. Even when you say, what is the love of God? Don't start with yourself in that definition. This is love that God loved us by sending His Son to die in our place for our sins. Can you imagine just how different Christianity would be if that verse read, in this is love that we initiated relationship with our Creator, who seemed a little ambivalent, but we aroused Him to relationship, to, to intimacy. We, we, we went to Him and we said, let's have this one-on-one, God. Let's have this relationship. And so He obliged. Christianity would be a very different religion, wouldn't it? In this is love, in this is the gospel. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. Verse 18 of the same chapter, 1 John 4, 18, says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. God comes to us and casts out fears in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He could have come to us and amplified fear, couldn't He? (laughs) You've given Him plenty of reason to threaten. You've given him plenty of reason to judge. But he comes to us in love and initiates relationship with us in love. The New Testament writers emphasize God's initiating activity in the gospel. 
with our passive involvement in response. That's what's being presented in 2 Corinthians 5.18. He reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. In MacArthur's commentary, he said this about that verse, "...reconciliation is not something man does, but what he receives. It is not what he accomplishes, but what he embraces." Reconciliation does not happen when man decides to stop rejecting God, but when God decides to stop rejecting man. That's a good word. And he initiates this love toward us in Christ. We can't miss this. You see it in verse 18, it's through Christ. And in verse 19, Paul gets explicit here by saying, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't come to us as half man, half God. Jesus doesn't die in our place for our sins. Jesus doesn't rise from the dead as 99% God. He does so as truly God in flesh. He is truly God and He is truly man. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, walked among us in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 2.9, it says that in Jesus Christ, deity dwells in bodily form. What a verse. That's the only place in the book of Colossians where, I think maybe in all of Paul's writings, where he uses that word deity. But he says all the fullness of deity. How do you get bigger than that? All the fullness of deity dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. And what is absolutely startling about this, what should actually have you kind of sitting back, hair blown back in awe in verse 19, is that He came to us in this way, not counting trespasses against sinners. Those who were absolutely deserving of judgment, those who were absolutely deserving of the immediate condemnation of God carried out in front of them, that didn't happen. Jesus didn't come as judge. He came not holding sins against sinners. But instead, He presented salvation to the whole world in grace. You see that in verse 19? God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself and not counting their trespasses, their transgressions, their sins against them. What an amazing thought. Now, I'm sure many of you have John 3.16 memorized. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. Okay, now verse 17. Who's got it? Verse 17, John 3, 17, it says this, a very important verse to memorize along with 16. You can just memorize them together. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world. He could have, would have been totally justified in doing so, but He didn't. When Christ was walking around here on the face of the earth, the earth He created, He wasn't bumping into people and sitting down like one of those tax collectors and saying, well, let's see your syntax. Not S-Y-N-T-A-X, not that, but S-I-N space tax. He wasn't saying that to them. 
I mean, can you imagine how differently his interaction with the woman at the well would have gone if he was holding her sins against her, if he was counting her trespasses against her? Jesus didn't do that. How sweet is our Savior? How gracious is our Savior? And for us as well, He's come to us. And and this is why Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only religion in the world that can say, come as you are. Because each one of you here this morning who has come to know the Lord in salvation, you were able to come just as you were. There were no qualifications on this. We didn't say, come to Jesus, asterisk, read the fine print. There are steps to this. You know, you've got to get rid of this thing, got to get rid of that thing. Clean yourself up a bit, and then you're qualified. That's not the gospel anymore. That's a deviation from the gospel. That's no longer good news. That's bad news, because that's work to do, and you will never be able to do that work the way that God would require. So instead, you come to Jesus as you are, and you're filthy, you're gross, you've got bad habits, you've got bad thinking patterns, you've got all this bad behavior that we actually see in the Corinthian church that lingers on, that has to get corrected over time. But you come with all of that, and you lay it at the feet of Jesus, and you say, here I am. Cleanse me. Take my life. Do what you will. And He's faithful to do that, isn't He? He's faithful to take every sinner who comes to Him in faith, to receive each one, to give you full salvation in Jesus Christ. And as we've come to know Christ as Savior, we now join Him in reaching the world in reconciliation. You see, sprinkled in with these truths about what God does in salvation, starting with verse 18, we see that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Those who embrace Him as Savior, who embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, now have a ministry to go out and reach the world to reconcile them to God. It's a new ministry. As sinners become saints, we have a ministry of reconciliation. And this applies to all Christians. It doesn't just apply to some. But every single person who has been redeemed, every single person who can rightly be called Christian, has this service the ministry of reconciliation. You can think about this as like your job, your duty as a Christian, now that you belong to God. Here's your service. Here's your work to do. Reconciliation. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. But you might ask yourself, well, how do I do that? What's my tool to go about doing such a thing? Well, we see in verse 19 that the tool has been given to you also. You've been committed the word of reconciliation. You see that the second half of verse 19? He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So your duty, your service, your ministry is reconciliation, and your tool for service is the word of reconciliation, which is the gospel itself. And the gospel is amazing because it's one of those messages that can be understood by a three-year-old, by a four-year-old. But someone who's been believing in the gospel, studying the gospel for decades has never reached the limit of it. You can just keep studying that word of reconciliation your whole life and never touch the edge of that dome. And so the gospel is simply starting off with the bad news that we are sinners who have sinned against the holy God and we are in need of reconciliation and God has initiated that reconciliation. In His love, He sent His Son to walk among us in the flesh. 
to live a perfect life, dying in our place for our sins and rising from the dead three days later, that if we believe, just trust in what He has done, we will be saved. It's a work of grace. It's a message of hope. It describes the love of God. That's your tool. How are you to go out and to be involved in reconciling the world to God? Sounds like a big chore, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It sounds like a big chore. (laughs) That's a huge task. How can you do such a thing? Well, you can't. But you can be an instrument in God's hand. You can be an instrument in the hand of your Savior as Jesus is faithfully building His church. And you know how He does it? Through His church. Jesus builds His church by sending His people out into the world to be salt and to be light, taking the tool, the message of reconciliation. But He doesn't just leave you with a job. He doesn't just leave you with a tool for the job. He then gives you a title. Verse 20, if you were to wear a name badge, this could be on the name badge. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As a minister of reconciliation, someone going out with the gospel, you can rightly be called as having this title, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You have the privilege of, Christian, You have the privilege of representing Jesus Christ in all of life. Now, some of you know that before I was full-time in ministry, I was in sales. So don't hold that against me, okay? It wasn't used cars. I don't know if that helps. But I was in sales. And one of the things I learned by transitioning to that task of life, transitioning to that duty, that service, is that you're kind of in a challenging position, because you are in between your company that hopefully you like and respect and the customer. And you are to make both of them happy. And that's tough. That's really difficult. Because uh, when, you're, when you're a representative, your duty is to bring the two sides together for there to be harmony. And that is a monumental challenge. For example... I, at one point, landed the, what would become the biggest sale I'd ever have with that company. Very happy with that. And the company was pretty happy with that. And it was an online company that required the users to go online and to do training and other things. And so we landed this huge account, and they're going to kick off with our training. They're going to have a big kickoff week where they're sending all their people there. Well, it turns out our company didn't have the bandwidth for that. And so, here come the flood of customers. You know, I did my job, yay, I got all these customers coming. And then it clogs up the whole thing. I don't know how the technology works, but the servers and everything else are spinning their little wheels and lights are blinking and smoke's coming out of the server room and everything else. And the website crashes. And I thought I was doing my job and making both sides happy here. And then I made both sides very angry. (laughs) Now, my company's not making any money. And my customers, not very happy. So we have to be, you know, a little bit challenged by this when it comes to being an ambassador, being a representative, because we're caught in between. And we're put in the Lord's service to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. Because there are some people who have gone out into the world claiming that they're doing the work of Christ, and in their methods, with their new inventions, they're actually not pleasing the Lord. They're not being faithful ambassadors. And I'm afraid for some of them, as Jesus said of the 
Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23 that they go to make a convert, and once the convert's made, he's twice as much a son of hell as they are. We should be a little intimidated by that, shouldn't we? That if we go out and don't do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, if we change the message, if we water down the message, if we change something about what God has given us, we're no longer doing this the right way. But as long as we're seeking to honor God, we're seeking to uplift the name of Jesus, as long as we're seeking to uphold the word of the gospel, the message of reconciliation, not watering down, but also not putting any roadblocks in there that don't need to be there, we can be so privileged in this, can't we? We can feel so honored that God would use us to reach the lost. It's an amazing opportunity that we have to go and to reach people with the good news of reconciliation. And this ministry, as you think about your audience for this, it's of course taken to all people. This ministry of reconciliation, the word of the gospel, goes out to all people in the world, and it also, this ministry of reconciliation, abides in the church. We take this message of reconciliation to sinners, that's obvious. We implore those who are in sin to turn to Christ. We desperately desire to see those who have rejected God but are made in His image, those for whom Christ died. We seek to win them over in the name of the Lord because this is a matter of life or death. This is a matter of heaven or hell. We desperately desire to see every man, woman, and child to know the Lord. That should be on the heart of every Christian. We get to go out into this lost and dying world, a twisted, a perverted generation, with a message of wholeness, that they can be restored to God through Christ, with a message of sense. You think our world needs some sense? That we can explain to them that God has made the world and how sin has infiltrated every part of life and how Jesus is the answer. We get to take that message to people, to inform them of what God has revealed in the truth, we get to join our Creator in going to the nations in this way. But what we see in our passage here, startlingly, we see that this message of reconciliation continues to apply to the church. Look again at verse 20, where Paul says, We beg you, the Corinthians, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this is an amazing thing. I want you to catch this. Just as we implore those in sin to turn to Christ, we get to implore those in Christ to turn from sin. That message of reconciliation carries on in the church where we still, to one another, go to one another, calling one another to be faithful to the truth. Paul here is telling Christians to be reconciled to God. Just marinate on that for a moment. Those who are saved because they've been reconciled to God, they've gone wayward and they need to be reconciled to Him again. Not that they've lost their salvation, not that they're now hell-bound. He has affirmed the Corinthians in their faith through this. He's affirmed them at the beginning of His letters to them that they are saints. He tells them, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you were called to be saints. But even saints can wind up in a ditch, can't they? Even saints can be wallowing in the mire on the side of the road. And what is needed in that situation? Other saints to come along and pick the person up in love. This ministry of reconciliation just continues in the church. God 
comes to us through one another in our ministry in the local church. And we make an appeal to one another to lay down sin for Him. We appeal to one another in love, Christian to Christian, to lay down, to set aside every weight, every sin that so easily ensnares us, and to keep running the race for Jesus. And Paul even says here, we beg you. You see that in verse 20? We beg you to be reconciled to God. This is the same word that's used in the Gospels when someone who is in need of healing, someone with some sort of physical illness or deformity, would say to Jesus, please heal me. They're begging. Someone who cannot help himself, begging the one who is able to provide that help. In the same sense, we can go to one another in the church when we see that someone is in desperate need of restoration and we can beg on behalf of Christ. Begging our brothers, begging our sisters to mortify the flesh, to come back to God through Jesus. It's our duty in the church as ambassadors for Christ, those who have the ministry of reconciliation. And we do this on behalf of Jesus. It is as though the Lord Himself is begging His people to allow Him to make reconciliation. Begging His church for reconciliation through His ambassadors. What an amazing image. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, we live it all the time, don't we? Because none of us is perfectly faithful in this life, and we need one another to call us back, to help us get back on the path, to help us get back on the trail as we keep marching forward for Jesus. Well, the basis for all of this teaching is the gospel. And we now come to the last verse in 2 Corinthians 5, and it's a great verse. It's a wonderful verse. There was a Christmas Eve service we had here a few years ago, and before the service started, I was sitting out in the lobby with Tyler, and Tyler's brother was here, and he came up to me asking me an out-of-the-blue blunt question like I guess woodheads are known to do, because uh, it just happens a lot with Tyler, so I guess it happens with his brother too. And he just said, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? Ooh, hmm. I, I needed some time, you know, I thought. But then it came to me pretty quickly. It's got to be 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's got to be the last verse here in chapter 5, the one we're about to look at. And Tyler's brother said, that's what Tyler said too. So, the pastors of this church, our joint favorite verse is this one. So, I'm going to preach a whole nother sermon. No, I, I, I won't uh, preach a whole nother sermon here. But this is the message of the ambassadors, isn't it? If you could sum it up in one verse... The gospel in one verse, here it is, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Oh, such a good verse. So good. Well, let's just dwell on this for the rest of our time, breaking it down into five phrases. First, we see in these first three words, He made Him. We can jump past that to get to the other good stuff, but we, this is good too. We've got to dwell on every verse or every word of this verse. He made him. This is so key. In the International Standard Version, it says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. He made him. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. What does it mean that he made him? Well, I think it can be summed up in this 
sentence, retaining his perfect nature, the Holy Son was willingly subjected to the Holy Father. He made him, the Father made the Son, the Holy Eternal Son of God was willingly subjected to the Holy Eternal Father. There's a submission, a subjection that's taking place where the Father is making the Son sin for us. Because of the perfect nature of Christ, Christ had to be made sin. You understand? This wasn't something that He already was. Because he knew no sin, and we'll talk about that here in just a second. He had to be made sin. It's, it's as unnatural, or it's certainly more unnatural, than making a, a bar of soap dirty. <laughs> you ever thought about, you know, you get a bar of soap and it falls in the mud or, you know, gets dust on it or whatever, you just start rubbing it and it's soap, you know, it's soap again. You take off that layer, it's soap. How can you make a bar of soap dirty? How can you make the holy, eternal Son of God sin? Hmm. Well, there's a, a making that has to happen here. There has, a, there has to be a process. There has to be a subjection. And the Father subjected the Son, and the Son was willingly subjected to the Father. He made Him who knew no sin. This is very important, the second phrase to dwell on. The Son knew no sin. He never participated in any sin. His human existence, as He came to us in the flesh was wholly unstained by sin. He had no personal relationship with sin itself. You see, Christ's nature is eternally impeccable. Impeccable is one of those words that we only use for special occasions. Like, you know, you have a really good meal and say, it was impeccable, you know. Uh, It's just His nature is impeccable, meaning it's not stained in the slightest bit by sin. There's no ounce, no drop, no little granule of sin. Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, is unable to sin or err in any way. During His earthly life, Jesus was unable to sin in anything that He did or thought. He is and always will be total perfection. This, of course, is testified by the Father Himself. Remember, at Jesus' baptism, the Father declared, "...in Him I am well pleased." How could he be well-pleased in Jesus? Well, he's impeccable. This was also attested to by the apostles. Those who wrote Scripture refer to Jesus as holy. Jesus is absolutely through and through holy. Even Pilate, when Pilate examined Jesus at the end of his life, remember what he said? I find no guilt in him. Absolutely innocent. Declared multiple times, actually, by Pilate. We see it, too, with the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross says, this man's done nothing wrong. The one who was crucified next to Christ shouted out, Jesus did nothing wrong. Isn't that amazing? And then after Jesus breathed his last, you have that Roman centurion who says, surely this man was innocent. Even unbelievers recognize during Jesus' day, he is absolutely impeccable. He knew no sin. But our third phrase is that He was sin on our behalf. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. We first need to recognize that this doesn't say to be a sinner. Jesus was not made to be a sinner on our behalf. That's not the case. He was made to be sin for us. And we can start understanding this by recognizing 
the curse of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Same kind of language. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, quoting the law there, in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus became a sin offering in our place. If you think back to the the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in Israel, you had the goats that were to be sacrificed. One was to be killed, the other was to be sent off into the wilderness. But before that one goat was sent off into the wilderness, they laid their hands on it, and the sin of Israel was transferred to that animal's account. That animal became sin for the people and carried their sins far away, sent out into the wilderness. In the same sense, Jesus took the curse of the law on our behalf, became a sin offering for us, became sin for us, was treated as though our sins were His. Something to think about when you consider your personal sins. He was treated as though He had performed those sins. And as He made that offering in our place on the cross, He was satisfying the wrath of God. His death placated God's rightful anger towards sin. There's a punishment that all sinners have deserved since Adam. Death. All of us deserve it. And Jesus took that punishment in our place. It was all put on Him. You might think that you're not that bad, but you deserve to be on that cross. That was your place. And Jesus took that place for you. He did it for you. And so now, instead of looking to the cross as a bleak image of what you deserve, you can now look at it as the place where you're healed. It's no longer a place of death. For you, it's a place of life. The blood-stained cross, the nail-driven hands, all for you, that you would be made right with God, to be reconciled with God. That's the second half of this verse. All of this happened so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That phrase, so that we might become, Paul isn't here saying that some Christians will become the righteousness of God and some Christians will not become the righteousness of God. (laughs) All Christians will become. In fact, that word might is not in the original, it's not in the Greek, but it's there just as a way of explaining this verse in English today. This happened that we might become God's righteousness in Christ. This is transformational language talking about becoming something else. The sinner becomes a saint in Christ. He was made sin on our behalf that we would transform, that we would become something new. We actually become something else when we believe. You're born again. You're a new creation. You become new in Jesus. And we have here in this phrase that little two-word combo, so that always like to point that out to you. It indicates purpose. What was the purpose of Christ dying? The purpose was that we would become the righteousness of God in Him. When Jesus was dying on the cross and He quoted Psalm 22 by crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
This is the answer to that question. Why did the Father forsake the Son at the cross? So that we would become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus was dying in our place for our sins. He was taking on the punishment we deserve that we'd become God's righteousness in Him. And that's the last, the fifth and final phrase I want us to consider is the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the great exchange, isn't it? You give Christ your sin, and in exchange, what do you get? The very righteousness of God. That's a declaration that God has pronounced over you. If you are a Christian, God has pronounced you totally righteous. Totally, completely. You have His very righteousness on your account. You can be called a saint. You can be called holy because God sees on your account His perfection, His purity, His innocence. Perhaps many of you have seen that movie. It's getting older now, The the Green Mile, one of my dad's favorite movies. My dad has like five movies that he watches, and that's one of them. That made the cut. There's also Jeremiah Johnson and some others, but he likes the Green Mile. And that movie is filled with Christian imagery. The main character, John Coffey, what are his initials? J.C., like Jesus Christ. And if you remember that movie, you might remember his thing that he's able to do is take away people's sicknesses, diseases, and even their guilt. Spoiler alert, so you might want to put your fingers in the ears here if you haven't seen it. But at the end of the movie, he ends up dying unjustly because other people had committed a crime and yet he was accused of it and he went all the way to death in their place. The whole thing's like an illustration or an allegory for the gospel itself. In Christ, we give him all of our bad stuff. And he takes it on his account and goes all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross for us, that we would be healed, that we would be given life, that we would be totally and completely reconciled to God, that we would be credited with the whole of perfection. Thinking about the eternal Son of God's perfect, impeccable nature that we were just dwelling on, that is what gets put on your account in him. Eternal, perfect holiness is credited to your account because that's the only way you could ever make it to heaven, isn't it? God doesn't let one profane thing enter His presence. But you have the righteousness of God, Christian, and you will enjoy the presence of God forever and ever. And you'll notice in verse 21 at the end, this tells us that this happens in Him. This happens in Christ This proclamation, this declaration does not happen apart from Christ, but it's entirely because of Christ. And so when you are in Christ by faith, when you've trusted in Him by God's grace, you can rest assured that you are accepted because you are His righteousness. You no longer have to worry ever again if God will accept you. How could He not accept you? You're the very righteousness of God in Christ. In Homer Kent's commentary, He summed it up this way, the gospel is the stupendous announcement that man's sin has been fully paid by Christ and that God's righteousness is ours for the taking. That's the ambassador's message. That's how we became ambassadors, because we were forgiven of all of our sin and credited 
with all of God's righteousness. So as you sit there, perhaps wondering, how could a sinner like me be counted as the righteousness of God? Well, how could the eternally righteous Son of God be treated as a sinner in your place? If you get that second part, you'll get the first part. It's the great exchange that happens. He took all that we deserved. He was treated like you should have been treated. And in exchange, we're treated like He should be treated. By God Himself, we are treated as His sons and daughters, the saints, the holy ones, forever and ever, if we believe by faith. This is the heart of the gospel. Do you believe that He was in your place? I hope you do. Because if you believe, the promise is you're righteous once and for all. God, we thank you because of this righteousness that you've given. You've initiated the reconciliation. You paid it all through the work of the Son. And you've given us the fullness of perfections in him. Help us to take this gospel to heart, that it would dwell in our innermost being, that it would never leave, but it would remain there and grow and bear fruit, that the seed of the gospel through this life would produce fruit for you, that we would do your work your way as your ambassadors, taking this message out to those who desperately need this news more than anything else in the world, more than hearing I love you from a spouse, more than hearing the news, the diagnosis from a doctor, they need the gospel. Help us to have that kind of perspective and to give our lives to you for your service. God, we owe you all things because you've loved us. And we thank you for all that we have in the name of Jesus. Amen.